0: invite on um, our first speakers uh, of this day two of Frontiers. William Fiennes, of course, who you all um, met yesterday, the author of the award-winning Snow Geese in the Music Room, director and co founder of the charity First Story, which promotes challenging, uh, writing in challenging schools in, in this country, and Tim Dee, writer of The Running Sky and Four Fields, prolific broadcaster and birdwatcher. Tim and William. Can I see it in this trend. Yes. Of course. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Morning. Hello. Sorry it's so early. Although, you're probably both early risers, are you?
1: I, I've been on a 20-mile run. And
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um, that comment of John, John Burnside's, and it, it early on in Four Fields, um, this beautiful book, um, you make, you, you say it, in fact, it's just a sentence, our bodies are gr- our grass. <laughs> um, and then you talk about the transubstantiation of the earth working on. I might just ask you to qualify our bodies are grass.
1: Well, <laughs> uh, I uh, nick that idea from Thomas Brown, the fantastic um, uh, 17th century no, uh, Norwich doctor, uh, surveyor of... The entire world, as he knew it at that time. Um, should I read a little tiny section, yeah, f- that'd be which, great. which actually gives the quotation, because I don't want to be. Um, <coughs> and it picks up a line in the in the the Psalms as well, of course. You know, um, our days are as grass, and I wanted to write about human temporiness, but also human return in in the, in a the, the way in which. Um, Grass allows us to kind of find a parallel. Um, so this is the little, this is the little bit about grass. I've got too many l- little labels in here. Um,
0: sort of page. Yeah. Eight, tenish.
1: <laughs> 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 if you wrote this stuff? Yeah. Um, well, let, let's move on to something else. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, here we go. Um, should I just read this? Is that okay? Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Great, thank you. So two, two this, is, this, this, is, this will get us to where I, I hope you, what you're talking about. Two grass truths I have learned. Like anyone in the temperate world, I lived with these without knowing them. If you cut grass, it doesn't die. If you eat its tops, it doesn't mind. Because it grows from near its base at what is called its cal- intercalary, meristem. This is the joint-like node on the stalk, the bump you feel beneath your fingers when you pluck a stem from the side of a path. Grasses and intercalary meristems are inseparable. In the growth tissue at the meristem, rapid cell division occurs and pushes the grass upwards. A simple and beautiful adaptation has brought us to where we are. Hay can be cut, lawns mown, plains grazed. Herbivores, grass croppers, drove this evolution. Grazing by buffalo maintained the prairie. A savanna is a wildebeest The second unknown known, our bodies are grass. We are grass carnified, as Thomas Brown said. All those creatures we behold are but the herbs of the field, digested into flesh in them, or more remotely carnified in ourselves. A cow eats grass and makes milk, a steer eats grass and becomes beef. We toast our cheese and barbecue our burgers and wrap the ensemble in a bread roll made of grass. Three great food crops of the north now of the whole world are grasses, rice, corn, and wheat. They made us, but we made them as well. We've more than grown up together. Our domestication of the wild has drawn the wild after us. The transubstantiation of the earth works on.
0: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Mm-hmm.
1: Can, I, can I add something to that? No, yes, I'm please. sorry, I'm hogging yeah. all the No, grass. no, that's the point. Yeah. When, yeah. I, when I yeah. first took this book out on the road, I, used I, ha- I lived in the fens and um, There are turf farms there where they actually roll up the turf and make college lawns and things like that. So to begin with, I actually had a couple of rolls of turf, but I now got prosthetic grass. uh, Which (laughs) I. uh, (laughs) So these are my four fields. Um, I got these in the pound shop, one pound for each field, Um, and I like to have them. They're like little prayer mats to me now. (laughs) I like to keep them in the front. So um, that's. I'm not a farmer. That's yeah. the most important thing to say here. Yeah. I, mean, I love the, the idea of grass, and it's the idea of grass in a way more than the reality of grass. I'm really frightened of cows. Yeah. And yeah. I don't oh, really right, like yeah. to go into fields very much. Um,
0: well, that's good to hear, because yeah. fr- I find them frightening. Anyway,
1: I used to have little farm animals. that you could. You, um, and you remember when you used to be able to get Greengrocers used to put their vegetables mm. on, on beautiful grass, mm. and I begged and begged my mother to ask a greengrocer to give me get some of that grass as a child, and she did, but then your animals were too small actually for the scale, and they used to <laughs> fall
0: over fall over in the grass and the field i mean so I- in linking with this, that the, you make the comment again in the book, this connection that, uh, that you know t- to me feels really evident and not at all you know, a, a, a source of um, feeling despondent about mortality so much as something that is just obvious in, in front of you. You say, without without fields, no us. Without us, no fields. So there's a, a circularity to this, um, our connection. It seems so ridiculous, isn't it? We, we talk about our connection with the world, and, and similarly, how distant we've become from the natural world. These things become... Um, stereotype things to say, but the, the truth of them is really apparent to me. and Their relevance, I guess, in talking about health and well-being mm. and medicine, and, or personhood. Yeah, and it works at a, at a metaphorical level as well. I mean, we,
1: we reap what we sow, we plough our own furrows. Uh, it's always coming back to us in, uh, to, to, to catch us up in that way. Um, I love the way in which farming is the oldest sort of mark that we've made on the surface of the earth, and yet it's a sort of indication of our going wrong as well as our going right. Mm. Uh, I mean, we need to do it in order to to live. And they're kind of beautiful marks, those fields, and they're necessary marks that we've made, that sort of scarification of the earth. Um, Mm. And yet, it sort of goes wrong every year, almost. I mean, it needs to be done again and again. We have to, you know, we both are within the grain of the world Mm. in more ways than one, and and against the grain of the world. And these fields, in in their widest sense of what a field is, seem to indicate that to me.
0: And in a sense, you know, mirroring, you know, often the self-flagellation, you know, the doctors and nurses and health professionals, you know, we, we as, 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 a, as a species, we give ourselves a hard time about what we've done with and to the planet. But could it have been any, I mean, you know, I, it's fine, perhaps there was an inevitability to that kind of interaction of humanity with the planet. Yeah, I mean,
1: it depends whether you believe
0: in the fall, I suppose, or something like that. I mean, um,
1: you were talking yesterday about Eden and the possibilities of of recovering Edens and and of wildernesses and the idea of places uh, that people might not have messed up in in the world, of which there are very, very few. One reason I wanted to write about fields was I felt that too much effort was being put into kind of thinking about these, these untrammeled, untouched places. I was. I wanted to find a way to talk about the mess we've made and how and the, the kind of enduringness mm. of that of that mess, nonetheless. You know that we can get by. Yeah. It, it goes wrong, but it goes
0: right at yes. the same time. William, I just wanted to like draw you in on this, and linked in a way with this is this idea of home, mm. um, and you you talked about um, in the snow geese particularly after your illness. Um, the, the s- the, the visceral pull, but not just for home, though, for for otherness at the same time, is this, this, this um, tension which, you know, and, and I suppose if there's a conversation that I will have repeatedly with with patients, either in clinic or on the ward, is either don't bring me in, I want to be home, or get me home, that, that
2: I, I tug. Can, I can imagine that from a, a doctor's point of view. I felt it incredibly powerfully because I think that um felt that being ill was a sort of expat- expatriation or a sort of deportation from my homeland uh, suddenly the language was different mm. all these strange the strange vocabulary of my condition and the treatments the drugs uh, the procedures it was a new language to learn um, and I think part of our sense of home also is about repetition home is where things are the same uh, t- tomorrow as they were today and in this condition of illness I felt that I'd been expatriated, I'd been taken away from all of that, and I did f- have this visceral idea of going home to the place that was most familiar to me, to a way of being that was most familiar to me. And I remember the consultant and the surgeon going round the wards and saying, you can go home, and it sounded mm. like a, a sort of benediction. A gift. Mm. Some, a, a gift. Mm. I say in the snow somewhere it was as if he were, he were giving them a state of grace or mm. and um, and then I w- I, so I went home and that was fantastic and then, after about two months of sort of forced confinement because of what was happening to my bowels and um, I was m- absolutely miserable <laughs> I wanted to be anywhere but home and I wanted to be having new experiences and new adventures and and um, i didn 't want the repetition and the sameness and it did make me think that um, all of, all of us, to one degree or another, negotiate a way between these two impulses yeah. towards the known and towards the new. It's impossible to imagine a life lived only in the known, with yes. never anything new in it. But equally, it's impossible to imagine a life that's lived only in the new, without anything familiar. Or, um, and, well, but and Whereas so many
0: people might have backpacked to Budapest, you ended up um, following the migration of snow geese. Back yes, but that was partly
2: my insanity and, and partly um, uh, I suppose a feeling of um, and this is where I feel a great sort of kinship with Tim and his writing of, of suddenly in my early 20s finding a, a great love for the natural world and an interest in the non-human world and um, and I suppose particularly in migrating Birds mm. which was what, what uh, and it, it wasn't that I saw any um, equivalence between what I was feeling, and you know, and I, I, I hope that I was more sophisticated than to see that, that was what birds were going through. They didn't migrate because they were bored of where they were. They migrated because of the planet's tilted. We we get seasons. We you know some parts of the year we're close to the sun, and others you get variations of of food resources. And so all creatures have to adapt to those cycles. And some birds will migrate in order to take advantage of. Um, variation in food supplies and so on, but I did, s- I did feel s- it struck a chord with me mm. that that sense of Zugunruh, which is the technical term for restlessness, this migratory word restlessness. Is, yes, yes, yes. Yeah.
0: I just wondered if I might ask you mm. to talk a bit more about that. That's c-
2: that's great because I struggle to pronounce it right through the book. Zugunruh. Well, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing <laughs> it right. I, I knew how to write it, but um, uh, well, this extraordinary phenomenon of migratory restlessness, uh, known by the German word Zugunruh, so that even if you kept um, a migratory bird in a cage under constant environmental conditions so the same day length the same temperature uh, while its conspecifics in the wild are starting to migrate the bird in the, in its cage will start to mm. get restless and they also get restless in a particular direction mm. so they hop in a in the cage they'll hop in the direction that they go and there's a wonderful experiment done i can't remember the name of the biologist the ornithologist who did it but i think it was indigo buntings maybe migrating from Scandinavia, and then they would go south, they would go southwest, um, and then, at one point, they would then turn south towards Gibraltar. And um, he kept some buntings in a cage under these constant environmental conditions, and they hopped southwest in the cage while their wild specifics, conspecifics, were doing the same, and then as their conspecifics in the wild changed direction, so the birds in the, in the cage under <coughs> constant environmental conditions Already, al- also change their direction. So there is this. I mean, the, the mechanisms of migration and bird navigation is are very complicated, and there are all these sort of built-in redundancies. There are many compasses and many sort of rather complicated interactions. Of, but but there is there is a, a sort of um, hardwired genetic uh, inheritance in birds that I well I found all of this fascinating. Mm. But 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 also. Um, uh, for me, sort of uh, wanting to have a relationship with the world ar- around me, uh, wanting to have an intimate relationship with the world around me, and I think this ties in very much with what Tim writes about. Um, was was a lot to do with 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 naming things, and and I've I've said to people, friends, that I, l- I love knowing the names of the birds and the trees yeah. and the plants around me, and. The and 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 I've one or two people said, oh, "I don't care about that. That's just mm. that's just imposing a human system on mm. on something wild." And I I feel about it a little bit differently. I think that when you when you meet somebody, the first thing you share is your name, and and the bec- that's the first step to having a relationship. Mm. We say, "Hi, I'm Sam. I'm Tim," and that's the beginning. Mm. You're you're sort of you have a presence in the world, and I feel the same about about um, things in the non-human world that actually. Giving and recognizing giving a name is a way of granting a being in the ecosystem of your inner life and um, uh, was sort of became incredibly important to me not in a not in a way of sort of colonial uh, sort of colonial occupation mm. of the natural world but simply in a way of having a relationship with the things around me you both talk the about the that amazing on. the
1: amazing thing about that though is mm. that if you if you're interested in birds or, or Non, the non-human world. You go to the window every morning, pull back the curtains, and not one tree knows mm-hmm. that it's a tree. The starling doesn't know it's a starling. I mean, it lives with starlings uh, and, and behaves starlingly, mm-hmm. but it doesn't know its name. And I think that's a fantastic gift back from, mm-hmm. from the natural world, is that, is that we do all of that business And that deepens our experience, massively. You know, to know that there's a rock pipit, a tree pipit, a water pipit, you know, it's fantastic. You don't just get pipit, you get every element (laughs) there. Um, But I think it's wonderful also that you, that the blackbird doesn't know it's a blackbird, and yet Mm -hmm. it is so obviously being a blackbird to us. Yeah. Um, And that's, the fact that it doesn't answer back in that way is is both the challenge, that's why we keep on putting our finger in it, or trying to put our finger into that world, uh, but also, Know, c- can never ultimately contain it or capture it because it's, it refuses to be captured.
2: I think that's why I find um, uh, J. A. Baker's book, *The Peregrine*, so powerful. I don't know. Perhaps some of you will know this book. This extraordinary book by a, a rather mysterious man called J. A. Baker, who lived in was it Essex? Yeah. Or, yeah and and was obsessed with peregrine falcons, and every day would go out and um, and track down a peregrine mm-hmm. and, and and watch peregrines and. And would annotate and would make these notes, these sort of journal entries, in an effort to get closer to the, the non-human world. And and he he sort of gets closer and closer in his knowledge of the peregrine and his his um, his incredibly detailed attentiveness to its behaviour and everything. And then there's a bit right at the end of the book, which is this sort of the climax of what the whole book's working towards, where he's sort of standing next to the peregrine. And but there's an absolute sort of otherness, Mm. and there's a point where you can't, where knowing the names, and however uh, closely you attend, it has its own life um, that's ineffable, Mm. that we can't um, inhabit. But we, uh, extraordinarily, somehow,
0: we fail to see this around us, and you talk about this, Mm. that we don't, these things become invisible to us somehow, and early, I mean, you, you commented on this, Tim, early on in the book, so, Early encounters with birds once found a name started something like a, uh, something like a shock into living. The world leaned on me, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the time we failed to <laughs> notice trees, bird flights, mm-hmm. um, and once seen, once vividly seen, and you know, Dennis Potter talked about this in his, um, one that last interview with Melvin mm-hmm. Bragg, about the extraordinariness of seeing the blossom, be- because in fact he, you know, he knew this was his moment of seeing the blossom. Mm-hmm suddenly it came to life, and things were wondrous, and trivial and important at the same mm. time. It, it's, the, the gift is missed, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's, these days, more and more of our experiences are digitized and screened, um,
1: and so actually, and actually, fewer and fewer of those trees and birds are out there to be seen anyway, so there's a, we're in a kind of crisis of, of encounter. Uh, I mean, you, ha- you have to learn to look, but mm. m- increasingly, even if you can, you have learned to look. Um, there's less to see, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, you know that's where I, th- I think a lot of this nature writing, whatever it is that w- we're up to, comes out of this sense of um, the shifting baselines, a sense often of an intensity of a of a, of a childhood experience in a world of abundant apparent abundance. You know, mm. you step out of your of your childhood home, wherever that is, and and the world is at large, mm. uh, and and you and you come into a kind of adult consciousness where you begin to name things and and, and label things, and then you begin to discover that actually there were fewer things uh, around than there might have been uh, when you were a child, Mm. where you were barely conscious of them, Mm. but nonetheless living in this fabulous sort of welter of life. And uh, a a lot of my my writing is in a way an attempt to capture a time where I wasn't interested in writing, uh, when I was interested in, in kind of joining as mm. much as I possibly could, uh, and, and, and increasingly in a sad old man, you find that the only way to join things is by making uh, you know, kind of verbal or uh, literary equivalents of them, you know, to make the stone stony, uh, it seems to be the project. Uh, unfortunately, because there are fewer and fewer stones,
0: that's not c- quite literally the case, but yeah. uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, that phrase, you need to learn how to look, mm. that sort of attentiveness, yeah. I just wonder if you could I don't know, perhaps you could say a bit more about that, what that, what that is, because it, it strikes me that kind of attentis- attentiveness, I don't want to draw the metaphor too far, but there is a parallel there in how we learn how to look at what's around us in yeah. medicine. It's a species of love,
1: I think, is how I describe it somewhere. Mm. Um, Another great phrase. You know, yeah. uh, am- uh, you know the, the etymology, of the word amateur, it means a lover. Uh, and uh, you know, I was very keen to be called an amateur bird lover yeah. Uh, yeah. because, as a child, because I, I sort of knew what that meant. It meant that I was I- in, enamoured of 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 the of the world that didn't give a monkey's about me, uh, and that was the part of the whole point. The thing flew on. It didn't want to be. It didn't want to come close to me. It was. It was. Um. Didn't. Wasn't necessarily nervous of me, but it just it knew it had other business, and, and that I wasn't part of it. And I, I rather loved that. It, it uh, uh, in a way, I. Encountering the world is deeply and enthusiastically and amateurishly is to make is to discover less of yourself at the very moment that you're discovering more of yourself. It's about a reduction of self in a way. For me, it's about losing self Mm -hmm. uh, in 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 that kind of fantastic storm of life.
2: Certainly, when I felt when I was writing the snow geese, I felt this sort of great uh, almost a polemical energy Mm -hmm. about. I wanted the book to be. A great enterprise of attention, hmm. and in some way it was about paying attention. Um, and I, I love what Tim says about it being ad, attention being a gesture of love. I remember my mother saying to me once um, that when you look very closely at something, it always entails a sort of bowing to it because you're leaning forward. So it, which is a sort of way of saying the same thing that it's a gesture of r- sort of respect. Or, um, and certainly I wanted in my writing to. To pay attention, and in as far as possible to everything, to the way people talked, to mm. the way people were talked, to the way the way birds mm. talked, and the way the landscapes looked. Um, so, and I, I felt almost a kind of ecological drive that I thought that um, we, you, you can't love something if you don't first notice it, yeah, and and that I wanted to be to to notice things and to or even that in be- fact what came across mm-hmm. in the
0: book is that once you notice it once you genuinely notice it it's hard not to love it yes it seemed to me I, in your travels in the snow geese i just i was uh, I, you know they're both really lyrical mm-hmm. books A- and you you were both you know making this, there was this commentary on you on the migration of birds and then incidental encounters with people at airports on buses mm-hmm. which i have to say I felt like uh, you know it doesn't take much for me to feel like a, a, you know a bad human being. I thought oh, I wouldn't want to talk to them on a bus at all. <laughs> yeah. you, uh, you were sort of uh, ah. enchanted and wondrous oh. by you know, of, of the conversation and attentive to it. And I was getting just so lonely. I think Basilian <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. um, uh, sort of d- uh, at some point sort of desperate for any human interaction, but, uh, but I but definitely um, I suppose be sort of a bit pompous about that book, that I did have a nice sense of wanting to convey a way of being in the world that was about curiosity mm. and paying attention. And um, and I suppose i I'm, um, it's I'm so interesting to hear that of course both Tim and I, our books are called nature, nature writing or mm. have been sort of... And I've always been slightly suspicious mm. about that term because I think it goes to the heart of but in some ways your, your, your questions are circling, Sam, you know, I th- there's a, a writer called Jim Harrison who quoted a friend of his saying, um, uh, I, you know, I don't, to talk about nature writing is like talking about water swimming. We're nature too, so what other kind of writing is there? I think that even, even this idea that there's a genre called nature writing mm. does in some ways imply or reinforce a schism between us and the rest of the natural world. Yeah. The r- uh, and, and that actually, yes, human writing. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, and and so I, I, in a way, I don't. I've always been uncomfortable about about the idea that there. Are, you go to some books that just deal with the with the non-human world, and then other books for the human world. Mm. And I suppose, and I I see this sort of schism, even even though, much as I adore watching. David Attenborough documentaries, for example, it does seem to slightly reinforce an idea of nature as mm. being something that's out there mm. and that's we look that's sort of roped off and mm. and remote from us. When we all live in weather, we all live among fields, we all live underneath birds, um, we all breathe air. Um, we we are we are in it and. Um, I don't know why I was talking about that suddenly, but anyway, sorry, Sam, <laughs> no, bring, no, bring, bring, no, bring us back.
0: Well, I just wondered, is it, might we have a couple of readings? Have you got the snow geese or just the music room? I've only
2: got the new music room. Yeah. I, I tried to, I need one to go co- buy a copy. I, I have a, a copy. Have it, it, everyone's bought his I've yeah. got a copy yeah. out yeah. there, actually, but
0: oh. perhaps a, a reading. After, if someone in the audience could throw one on the Is there <laughs> a snow geese out there? I've got one backstage somewhere. Oh, we've got one, brilliant. Thank you. We'll get it signed oh, while we're up here.
2: Thank you so much. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you so. Well, o- only to. Um, yeah, 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 no. It's it. um, Me, no. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, a bit about birds. Yeah. While we're talking about it. Yeah. Well, this is um, when I d- decided, as a, as a, I, in this sort of period of illness and and confinement, I I had this dream really that when I was well and strong, I would go and make a, a, have, a, have an adventure and a journey and, and follow some birds on their migration from their winter grounds to their breeding grounds. And um, I, I think about this a lot now, because it was just before, I did this in 1999, 2000, and it was just before sort of broadband and internet and Google, and it was so complicated to find out things then. So I was sort of improvising, and I ended up in a small town Uh, Near Houston in Texas, or south of Austin, called Eagle Lake, which I'd heard was where you'd see many flocks of snow geese roosting, and um, a man called Ken said he'd take me out. This all sounds very sort of dodgy. (laughs) Took me out to a to a prairie, Um, (laughs) 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 and and left left me. Ken drove off in the dodge, leaving me alone on the prairie. It was just after six o'clock. I parked the cavalier at the edge of the flooded field and waited, tense, eyes keen, vigilant for geese. I lifted my binoculars and panned across the water, finding ducks floating in twos and threes, waders tottering as if on stilts at the edge of the pond. In front of the sun, the birds were silhouettes, and I was too much of an amateur to tell one species from another. But when I saw eight tall slender birds with the long necks, legs and bills of herons and shaggy tail bustles and the dainty gait of ballerinas, I knew instantly that they were sandhill cranes, the oldest species of bird in existence, known to have lived in Nebraska in the Miocene nine million years ago. Birds which, it was once believed, helped smaller birds migrate by carrying them on their backs. The sun was close to the horizon now. Not the source of light, but the point to which all light was gathered, as if the day were going home. I leaned back against the car on the brink of geese, my ears tuned, my eyes alive to the slightest movement. Ducks muttered on the shallow water, red lights glimmered like cigarette tips on the radio masts, the mesquite trees had the bare stony branchings of tree corals. I heard bells pinging in Eagle Lake several miles to the northeast and then the rumble of a freight train, the ground vibrating with its industrial repercussions. There was a pale street redness in the west but the rest of the sky was a deep liquid Prussian blue with a pair of bright stars appearing very close together in the southwest, Venus and Jupiter in conjunction. A bird approached the pond, a heron, a great blue, Easy to distinguish from a crane because herons fly with a pleat in their necks, heads retracted onto shoulders, while cranes stretch their necks out straight without a kink. Sometimes we came across solitary grey herons standing like Baptists on the banks of the Brook or at the edge of a pond, footed to their own reflections. And My mother had painted one, its yellow scabbard-shaped bill and eye, the wispy black plumes at the back of its head on a strip of old roller blind that hung in the bathroom, the window looking out at trees with rooks cawing hoarsely in their heights, a kingfisher of smoky chipped glass standing on the sill beside a tin tray of coarse pumice and agate pieces, the white wall to the left of the door marked with initials, dates and horizontal dashes, children's heights measured year by year, heels to the skirting board. This great blue flew right over the holding pond, a ray ghosting through seawater, with five American white pelicans following behind, heads retracted like the herons, gula pouches sagging like jowls under their long bills. It was half past six. I leaned back against the blue car, waiting. The first sign was a faint tinkling in the distance from no particular direction, the sound of a marina of halyards flicking on metal masts. Drifts of specks appeared above the horizon ring, each speck became a goose. Flocks were converging on the pond from every compass point, a diaspora in reverse, snow geese flying in loose V's and W's and long skeins that wavered like seaweed strands, each bird intent on the roost at the centre of the horizon's circumference. Lines of geese broke up and then recombined in freehand ideograms, kites, chevrons, harpoons. I didn't move, I just kept watching the geese, the halyard yammer growing louder and louder until suddenly flocks were flying overhead, low over the shoulder, the snow geese yapping like small dogs, crews of terriers or dachshunds, urgent sharp yaps in the thrum and riffle of beating wings and the pitter-patter of goose droppings pelting down around me. They approached the roost on shallow glides, arching their wings and holding them steady, or flew until they were right above the pond and then tumbled straight down on the perpendicular. Sometimes whole flocks circled over the roost, thousands of geese swirling round and round as if the pond were the mouth of a drain and these geese the whirlpool turning above it. Nothing had prepared me for the sound, this dense, boisterous din, clamour of a playground at break time, a drone thickness flecked with high-pitched yells, squeals, hollers and yawks, the entire prairie's quota of noise, concentrated in Jack's holding pond by the two-storey house and the raised lake stocked with bass for fishing. I breathed it in. It was seven o'clock. There was a half-moon. I waited until the birds were settled, then drove back slowly along the farm tracks, leaving the headlights off until I reached the highway. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, follow that, you mean you? <laughs> <laughs> Should I? Uh, I uh, maybe, um, can I do two little quickies? Yeah. I wrote a book about birds as well called The Running Sky, but this is, this is just an attempt to go back a little bit before. What Will was talking about, just a single paragraph, I, I spent a, a lot of time in, in a place called Fair Isle, uh, in Shetland, the m- most amazing migration watch point. And this is just a thought that came out of that time. What must it be like to be so sensitive to the magnetism of the earth that you're able to taste the iron in the air, to be drawn up into that air as if evaporated, to feel the inching creep of longer nights pushing you away from what you know towards what you don't. What must it be like to hatch from an egg and look up from a nest and know the stars already? As if your paper-thin skull were a planetarium, along with the smooth curve of your late abandoned eggshell and the cup of your nest, too. As if the skies and the stars had pressed their map into everything there is of you. That's my fancy Mm. (laughs) pants writing. and maybe, maybe just to follow that, I could just talk about a, a bit of migratory wilderness. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of my fields is an African field. All my fields are, are kind of diseased, poisoned, turning in some places. Um, and I, I spend a lot of time writing about a, an old tobacco farm in Zambia, but I also wanted to see some wild grass, some sort of healthy grass. And I, I went, and spent some time in, in the Masai Mara, but the Masai Mara turns out to be a kind of um, slaughterhouse, as, as we know from David Attenborough and others, but um, I wanted to try to find a way of writing about that, the death in life that accompanies migration. Um, this is in, in uh, northern, southern Kenya, northern Tanzania. In the grass were corpses, thousands beyond counting, so many in one place. That there and then, the plane affected a revision of everything I knew about death. Almost all were wildebeest, dead young and dead old alike. They hadn't come here to die, but since they were here, they would die here. And because they live here in hundreds of thousands, the dead gathered at the feet of the living. In places for every standing animal, there was a shadow at its hooves. A skeleton, a skull, a mummified body, brown bags of bones old overcoats shed in the heat. I didn't see anything die, but I've never seen so many dead. The new dead steamed as vultures stoked at open ribcages. The old dead liquefied under the sun in a meltdown to meaty molasses, bones blurred in a hymn of flies. Grass grew livid from beneath through bleached bone houses. Grass grew livid from within, pulling up from ruchered guts. A last meal germinated, juiced into life by rot. A wildebeest grazed on the grass that sprouted from the stomach of a wildebeest. The same sun blared evenly down over everything. The air above the grass was either rancid or chalky. There were meals of bone to be had and there were dead eyes to be drunk. The vultures were fat, hyenas too. Where the grass was long, Sometimes only a rib or a horn was visible above it, the ruins of a city lost in a jungle. Where it was short, whitewashed collapses of bones daubed the plain with tents of spines and skulls like an abandoned camp. Death's organizing genius is to be disorganized, is to make a shambles everywhere. The very scatter of bodies was frightening, a skull where all else had gone, a complete skeleton without a skull three legs arranged like the spokes of a cartwheel, a splay of yellow teeth rolled like dice across bays, the skin and hair of a wildebeest looking as good as new, its interior a hollowed cave of gore, a new corpse plaited through an older one, a skull resting within a ribcage, and all the time the grass growing all about and the living stepping through the dead to eat it. What is it that pulls the herd of living and dead together What moves the Congress across the plain? Grass, exhausted, trampled and cropped beneath hooves. Grass, longer, thresher, greener, ahead. The smell of grass beyond the smell of the dead. The smell of green beyond the brown river. A glimpse of lions, yellow in the yellow grass. The push of teeth and the heels of the herbivores. Like a rising flood, a blunt front of wildebeest reached us, the advancing line half a mile deep billowed into the grass of the plain. Behind it, a solid scrum, a continuous interlocked shunt of 50,000 parts. The earth raised by five feet for miles into a moving brown crust. I couldn't see where the herd ended. The horizon was made of animals. I'll stop there. The horizon is our topic, isn't it?
0: I mean, two things come to mind on that one um a comment about the the map, the stars the, a map of the stars being pressed into the mm. um, bodies of, of um, migrating animals and uh, you know what that process is what you know what the process you know you, you sum it up very we are tilted i think one of the par- mm. one of this chapters starts on full stop um, but also you know what I'm perpetually astonished if you, if, you, if you see a murmuration of starlings as to what that process, what's happening there, um, and then further to that, you know, is it, is it? It must be impossible not to think about the consequences of migrating human beings in, in seeing that and the, and the parallels of, of loss um, as well as the. Mm-hmm. I guess almost the inevitability of it that we try and attach very comfortable frontiers, borders, and politics around. Um there was I an suppose. extraordinary,
1: uh, extraordinary um, Soviet science was very interesting. Uh, one, one of the, one of the, they did a lot of work on migration in the in the dying days of the Soviet Union, uh, and this seemed to be a kind of parallel parable. One of the things they used to do was catch house martins and swallows in um, Lithuania uh, along the Baltic coast, and um, sew their eyes shut, and then release them, and, and attempt to recapture them and find out how, how they've been able to feed and live without um, without being able to see. Uh, and given that this was an experiment conducted at the borders of the Soviet Union, where the uh, citizens of Lithuania and the other Baltic states weren't even allowed to get to the shore, I th- found it an extraordinary sort of parable for the kind of anxieties of science about itself and and about its own freedoms and human freedoms and and the the idea that actually, you know, the swans that are just arriving down the road at Slimbridge, Mm. uh, the Buick swans, have flown effectively over the head of the ghosts of the Gulag to get here. Uh, They've come from Siberia. And, and, and every Russian citizen living through a, a Russian winter would have known that the rooks that were leaving, uh, w- w- uh, which as they do, they're winter, summer visitors in Russia, um, the rooks that were leaving were going to go to a warmer place, a place where, you, where they weren't allowed to go to uh, effectively. Um, and I think that doesn't quite answer your question, but I think it shows yeah. that the, the human tangle, the suggestion of of freedom of movement mm-hmm. and passage is, is deep within us, yes. uh, but also problematical
0: uh, and yes. we 've found ways to stop people moving in fact, the physical tilt of the world, which and i don 't begin to understand migratory processes, but the physical tilt of the world at least is the beginning of that isn 't mirrored somehow in, in a tilt in, in, the, in the privileged tilts of the world um, and so, so the physicality permits migration of uh, non human species in a way that other tilts
2: don't. um, Tim described that so beautifully, the the, the sort of planetarium idea, and it was reminding me of experiments that I do report that are described in the snow geese. um, One of the sort of compasses that birds use is is the stars. Mm -hmm. And and there was some ornithologists who who actually put birds in a planetarium, (laughs) um, uh, but then would would change the... The pattern of the stars on the planetarium sky, and would see how they, how their Zuganru, their restlessness, altered accordingly. Um, and it did seem that the birds were particularly uh, attentive to the constellations around the around the North Star. Um, but I, I, it was a striking cause of me. Uh, now I'm only remembering this now. But when I was making this journey with birds, which took I, I was sort of, sort of travelling for two and a half months, really two, nearly three months, and it was it was in um, uh, uh, Ninety nine, really. When and it, and a lot of the news then was the breakup of Yugoslavia, and there was I can't remember which aspect of it was, but every night on the news there were these um, pictures of refugees in the former Yugoslavia, and uh, great columns of people being forced out of their mm-hmm. homes. And I, I suppose I felt the, <coughs> I felt the um, the sort of deep slander that it is to mm. it. Evict somebody from their home, or that uh, what what a what a, a huge um, uh, unrooting that is, um, and and felt I suppose constantly a sense of my own uh, privilege in the, in those terms of of not only having a sense of home but also having the freedom to come and go from it, and and even think about it and explore it in the way that I was then. Every night I would watch these these uh, reports on the news and feel sort of absolutely wrenched, wrenched by it. So, um, c- of course, my, my, I think perhaps this goes for a lot of people who become interested in birds, is that is, is the sort of classic idea of what is, is that they represent freedom, mm-hmm. <laughs> absolute freedom of movement and. and. Um,
1: they don't have bags, that's what the reason I like them. They, yeah, <laughs> they yeah. don't have to carry bloody bags yeah. with them all the time.
2: Yeah. And I, I felt this tension, because in a way, to me, they'd represented freedom, and a, a, f- a freedom from, from a... Whereas in my own life, I'd found that I'd, I was not... I'd been, I'd been sort of hamstrung by illness and, and my capabilities taken away from me. And then I, then I found that once I'd attached myself to this journey with birds, it wasn't a great gesture of freedom at all, because they were so annoying. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> because? Um, well, I imagined that a migration we just set off from Texas, and we just sort of go to the oh Arctic. Oh yeah, we're around, just, around, just, you were waiting yeah, around, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, um, not on time. And, and in fact, they're so <laughs> sensitive to the to the weather and the and and the, and the movement of spring that sometimes they would just hang out. And even sometimes I saw them flying south. And I was thinking, but what's what's that about? We're meant to be going <laughs> on. And there is this phenomenon called retreat migrations, where if the weather is very bad and there are storms, that the burbs will just sort of drop back. And um, which was. And in fact, the first time I ever talked about the snow geese um, on the radio was on the, the midweek program, and I was on it with uh, the actor John Gordon Sinclair, who was in Gregory's Girl. And I, and I said something like, I found I was often sort of waiting for these birds, and I, I spent you know, ages sitting in a motel in South Dakota waiting for these geese to arrive. And John Gordon Sinclair said, yeah, I've spent a lot of time in motels waiting for birds to show up, <laughs> <laughs> which, which, uh, which really lowered the tone of our... Of our of our conversation, but, but yes, that tension between freedom of movement and and an attachment to home, and funny enough, when there were so many reasons that I wanted to write the Snow geese, and one of them was it, it was to say something about home and our and our a different you know very different experiences of home but but I do feel that humans are home tending okay. animals and that we lean towards home and i i can see how evolutionarily speaking there're so many advantages to having a, a home and a known place mm. where you know where your water mm. sources are and you know that you're safe from predators and so on and and i had this in my head i was having this huge argument with bruce chatwin's book the songlines mm. where where he says things like home is an aberration mm. and we're basically nomads and mm. i was thinking no it's not it's not true nomads don't roam because they Feel happy. They roam because they want new food resources, and new grass for their animals, and so on. Um, so I had all of all of these things going on in my head that were partly to do with with the natural world and the, non, the non-human world, um, and and partly to do with human longings and human mm-hmm. yearnings. And I read um, it as a
0: ju- I read the snow geese as a junior doctor, and then reread it recently. And th- th- the description of the pool to home mm-hmm. resonated now so st- clearly in. Almost every interaction with a patient, mm-hmm. and um, so it, it, that visceral animal pull
2: is evident all around us. And perhaps I mean most when when we're in moments in in extremis, mm, mm, mm. Um, and even even in the many interesting studies in homesickness, uh, yes. sort of medical studies in homesickness. <laughs> yes, which come up a lot, and you talk about that. In the uh, book, yeah. Homesickness as a as a medical condition. Yeah. Uh, there's been lots of studies done on on. Um, uh, uh, sort of children at boarding schools and so on, and how the homesickness kicks in, the more unhappy they are. Or mm. uh, I mean, maybe that seems a sort of common sense thing, but but um, and 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 so so sailors on long journeys or those journeys where the ships would be frozen into the Arctic over the winter, mm. uh, it was absolutely crucial that they kept busy all the time, mm. and had this incredibly intricate program because any moment where you became sort of introspective or introverted. You would it would kick in.
0: Mm. Yeah, and you, I mean, we may not have time to dwell on this, but you you could say that you know the need for God is a kind of
2: homesickness, perhaps, or you at least moot
0: that in the book.
2: Yes, as if as, as if the longing for God were homesickness in paraphrase. I said mm. something like that, but I, I I just feel there are ways of people have different ways of, mm. of, of finding a sense of belonging, oh, yeah. and I think. Um, and I, I had this unusual experience of growing up. we never moved house um and there wasn't just that which is relatively unusual, but my family hadn't moved house for centuries um literally um and i so I did have this unusual sense of a, of actually a spot of a sort of geographical sense of home, but I do think there are other ways of being at home mm. in the world and and you know I think. For many people, can feel a sense of belonging in their work, and, and also in their relationships, mm, in the people, the person you love, th- and some people I do f- feel feel a sense of belonging in their faith or in their mm. relationship to God. I mean, there are, uh, there are different ways of being at home. It doesn't have to be a um, geographical uh, it location. Uh, it doesn't have to yeah. be a, an address.
0: Having said that, and as Tim's pointed out it reminded us, that the theme we've got you know 30 seconds to cover the theme of the yeah, event Horizon. <laughs> <laughs> How do, so we had an interesting conversation about this over the phone, about what, what that is, uh-huh. what the horizon is, and it being relative in fact.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, the, the principal field in this, in this book of four fields is a, is a flat field, is a field in the Fens near where I live in, in Cambridgeshire, and um, where I realized one day that if I was six inches taller, I could see further. <laughs> uh, and so the horizon, actually, is, is very relative in those terms. Um, and I spent a lot of time kneeling. These are kind sort of prayer mats, a uh, kind of metaphorical prayer mats. But I spent a lot of time kneeling to the grass, uh, getting you know, and going in local, which seems to be a requirement of this close looking, so mm. that they are actually uh, taking the horizon uh, away from me as far as possible, uh, as a as a way of feeling connected to or intimate with uh, a locality. Um, and then in that in that area, I mean, words, there's a marvelous line in, in Wordsworth about visionary dreariness. Someone mentioned negative capability yesterday. I think that's incredibly important in, in boring England, uh, English landscapes, and, and places where the, the horizon is 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 not, not of note. Um, visionary dreariness is the kind of operative term for me in in in, in, the, in the kind of southern English landscape. Um, there aren't big mountains. There aren't big kind of dramas uh, happening at the, at the horizon's edge. There's no, you know, the ocean isn't there. The, 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 uh, so I, I find the sky, the constable writing about fen fields not so very far away from mine in Cambridgeshire talks of the of the, of the, of the sky being the chief organ of sentiment. Um, you know, a, a determining sky is very important in, 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 that, in those horizons, the flatness of the land itself. I think, um, and that there are ways in which you import those senses of, of, of the edge of things uh, into our own, I mean, much more deep, deeply than, than simply at the experience of being in a landscape. I think if you grow up in southern England, your sense of the horizon is very, um, is curtailed because uh, there are people and, and, and cities and, and, and flatnesses in the in the way. And uh, so that goes
0: deep into us. <coughs> so when you say negative capabilities, there's this notion of living in, not fruitful doubts, after, yeah, you know, not knowing certainties, and, things, and yeah, um, yeah. how does that how does that link with this? Um, is, are you suggesting there that almost the, the horizons becomes solid and factual for yeah, us? Yeah, I mean, and one uh, of the
1: reason, one of the exciting things about the f- the fens is that they are yeah. they're, they're places of projection, and and they're, they're so flat, so apparently surrendered, that actually people have put up all sorts of things. Projected things onto them. So I mean, literally projects to drain them, to, to bring mm. them into uh, into human use. Um, uh, and and so the in a way, the negative capability comes out of uh, the kind of ordinariness of a field, if you like, the the banality mm. of, the, of the of the commonplace. I love the way in which a child, my kids, when they were young, as every child, you know, you start a drawing when you're a child, and you draw a green line across <laughs> the bottom of the page, mm. and that's that's where I began my thinking. About as well that that, that kind of the kind of apparently limited potential of that, and yet it's and yet it's a sense of the, uh, it being the generic substrate from which anything is possible, all mm.
0: sorts of projections. And the Fens, particularly as a landscape, and that continuity of land and water, is. I mean, I, I, I wonder if that's romanticising mm. it too much, but it feels there is it, the, the boundaries. Yeah, it's a very... Uh, I mean, it's a factory now. One. It's an industrial mm. landscape, but it's also very... Uh,
1: re- it refuses to surrender. I mean, mm. it has to be pumped of water mm. all the time in order, in order for it not to, re- to revert to f- sediment. Yeah, first one. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's a dynamic landscape, and we'd be foolish to think that any place that we think we've clobbered into submission mm. actually is. You know. I mean that's why some of my colleagues in, in the world of nature-writing, the dread cabal, um, <laughs> don't like the idea of the Anthropocene. I think that actually the Anthropocene is, um, Richard maybe I heard talking about this the other day, thinks the idea of a humanly created biosphere uh, where we're determining everything that goes on in, on, on the, in the earth is, is an act of hubris in a strange sort of way. Mm. Uh, that actually there are deeper truths and, and
0: longer-term resurgences that, uh, that we won't be around to see but which will surely keep the place going. And the opening quote, in fact the opening quote in the book, a man keeps and feeds a lion, the lion owns a man, mm. states that. Yeah. Yeah, we think we're in control, but actually, uh, these little birds are pulling our strings. <laughs> Can we have the house lights up, please, mm-hmm. on that? <coughs> we have uh, microphones roving, and there's a question just here. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> I, I think this talk was triggered by Sam's remark about privilege tilt, and um, It led me to think about climate change and, and, and the way in which animals are having to react already to you know, the migratory patterns, they're having to react to, to what early stages of climate change. Nicholas Stern's amazing review paper about 10 years ago of the global economic impact of climate change, I think concluded that the first big impact is mass migrations or attempted migrations by humans to adapt to their new climate zones. Can animals tell us anything about that? I can't. Don't look at me. Is <laughs> <laughs> there do. <laughs> <laughs> a doctor in the house?
1: Uh, yeah. I, uh, well, I. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? The great, uh, another great a- out of Africa journey, um, and you see that happening grimly across the Mediterranean, uh, even as we speak, no doubt. Um, yeah, I, I want to answer that by just mentioning one thing about some work of some colleagues and my wife, and, uh, who's a, who's a zoologist in Cambridge. Um, talking about the, the, the fallacies of, uh, of organic farming. Um, it might be that we need to farm intensively in parts of the world to get rid of, uh, organic farming is a, is a terrible middle-class bourgeois indulgence, uh, because if we, if we have organic, low, uh, low um, impact, low uh, sustainable agriculture, uh, it means that other parts of the world are gonna have to feed enormous numbers of people. Uh, it might be actually better to say goodbye to Almeria and the Trumpeter Finch in southern Spain uh, and cover it with plastic, as it mostly is covered now, in order to give us all tomatoes, rather than saying, well, we we'll are all grow low-grade, low-intensity in- tomatoes in Britain, uh, because it will still mean, because of China, Brazil, India, a- and everywhere else in the world, that, 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 that tomatoes will be required. And um, so we've got to globalise our thinking, I guess, um, and th- this this work is grim, read, but it's, it suggests that actually um, in, o- in order to keep bits of the Amazon, you're going to have to let other bits of the world go. You can't. You, we're not going to be able to feed ourselves uh, without making these sorts of things. The, uh, the lovely liberal dream of, of getting down and, and dirty with our, uh, our organic um, products isn't sustainable across a, a world population of seven billion. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, that might mean that they—they they could all, c- that, you know, many of them should come north, uh, many of them should come west, I- in order to live. You know, that's how. The, if that's—if that's what we're doing, that's what we—that's what we've done. And no one is really able to talk about this or think about this yet. But uh, it's coming. Because are there questions? It's uh,
0: <laughs> thank you. Hello, I wanted to ask Will. Um, could you speak up? Into the sorry. mic. Sorry. Yeah, thank this you. This is for Will about. Um, I haven't read your book, I'm going to, because <laughs> I thought the reading was beautiful. Um, but it's to do with the notion of home. So I wondered whether, whether, having read your book, whether one of the parts of your journey was because your home, as is, was your body, had betrayed you, and whether you had had to go on your journey um, to find an alternative home.
2: I, 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 I think that's a wonderful... Observation that our first home is our body, and I always I remembered um, you know at school there's that famous thing of you writing your address and you put uh, you know Oxford, England, uh, Europe, the the world, um, the solar system. I always used to think that actually it should start with your name because that's where you that's where you sort of live first off Mm -hmm. is in is in your body and that's absolutely. Right, that, that had betrayed me and had had um, had gone chaotic, and at a time really when you want more than anything to take your body for granted, uh, and I mean something that we always always want to do. And I, I used to think that was a, a sort of um, actually one of one of the one of the many sort of cruelties of illness and particularly chronic chronic disease was was it wasn't only a, a um a restriction on my freedom of movement and my sort of physical capabilities but also a restriction on my capacity to be free to imagine and think because part of my attention and my consciousness would always be attached to my body uh and i think that's you know i clinicians working with people with any chronic condition i i i i, I think that's such a huge um so assault on a, on a person, really. So in any interaction, when I was ill, there'd be part of my mind that was on the conversation we were having, and then part of my mind that would be on the pain in my uh, abdomen. And so I I had this sort of split consciousness, which which we all have to one degree or another because we have an inner life and an outer <coughs> life. Oh gosh. Uh, but um, I think it's particularly intensified that schism, that s- split of uh, that sort of bifurcation of consciousness in. In the predicament of being ill, um, so definitely it was it, it was a, f- a feeling of being homeless, fundamentally homeless, because i 'd been knocked out of my way of being, my habitual way of being, and I suppose then so I went on this quest, and this is what my thoughts about horizons were were how um, uh, on the quest you you walk towards the horizon, and then of course, the horizon is a figment it's an imaginary thing really it's because you walk twenty miles and there's still a horizon there and um and and i suppose um so of course that the, 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 you you the journey towards the quest you you don't you don't really get get there because the horizon is still. Ahead of you, and there are various sort of things that happen at the end of the snow geese. That, um, well, uh, this is a, sp- a spoiler alert. But I, uh, when I was out in the, on the Arctic, the tu- the tundra with a cu- with two Inuit, um, one of them, they were shooting a lot of snow geese to to eat, and um, and we ended up eating uh, eating a snow eating snow geese. <laughs> after I'd spent sort of three months dreaming about these things and, and having this sentimental attachment to them. And I remember showing it to an early reader and um, she said, I, I hate that bit where you eat eat the goose. And um, and I said, yeah, but it's so, it's so important, that moment in, in the sort of... Because um, sort of me and the object of the quest had, had sort of dissolved into each other. The horizon had not been reached. Um... The revelations had been had been along the, along the way, rather than in any sense of arrival. I don't know if that's answering the question. Only to say that that I th- that feeling of being of being um, uh, evicted evicted from my home by the the sort of trauma of illness is d- it definitely something that rings true to me. Yeah, wonderful. Uh,
0: is there a question o- over there? And then one at the top. Thank you.
2: Um, both of you sort of talked about different facets of privilege, and I couldn't help thinking when you were talking ab- that it's there's very sort of colonial tropes in what you're talking about, and where th- what, what you were thinking in terms of the exploration out into these forms of otherness in animals is also part of a post-colonial anxiety or melancholia. <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly think when I was uh, um, writing The Snow Geese, I, you know, there's that phrase, check your privilege, and I felt that I, I did want to do that as much as possible. Um, uh, it was a little bit harder writing my second book, The Music Room, um, where the privilege of the story was so written large um, because the house was a moated castle, <laughs> um, that uh, it was. Um, but I do. I I think there is, uh, of course, a, a danger of, um, uh, of of having a sense of sort of ownership of of places by writing and describing. But I I don't see any way um, around that other th- other than a kind of self awareness and. A pr- approaching things with uh, with curiosity and rather than um, assertion and mm. ownership, but I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you I feel. I write. A, a, I've got a lot about romantic haymaking uh, in
1: in this book about um, Tolstoy, maybe uh, above all else. Mm-hmm. And Tolstoy is extraordinary. He was in, in love with. He was in love with his serfs. He fathered a son called Timothy with one of them, actually, uh, not me, but um, mm. <laughs> he. He was in love with the, with 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 serf haymaking. How how the surfs, his his serfs made hay, and as you will remember, those of you who know Anna Karenina, he writes amazingly beautifully about Levin, who is effectively our model for Leo Tolstoy um, in that book, how he wants to lose himself, how he wants to destroy his privilege in a way, how he admires more than anything the uh, the labouring haymaking that his, that his people are doing, and, and it's an it's amazingly beautifully written chapter, as is Tolstoy's own diaries recording the same event, how he wants to go out there and be like his peasants, and how the peasants are laughing at him and say, you're the master, you know, you, you've got the privilege, um, and how he feels he can never lose that privilege. And it returns upon himself beautifully. I mean, it's it's an amazingly poignant piece of writing in in Anna Karenina, and uh, you know he's trusts the tale in that case. I suppose not the teller. Um, He he makes he makes Levin know more clearly than than he himself knew even perhaps. You know that 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 that, that, that pretending to lose your your privilege, pretending to change this 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 the situation, is was a fantasy. I mean, Tolstoy was marvelously. Ambitious in that regard. There's a wonderful story about him him deciding at a certain point in his late philosophical life that he didn't want he didn't believe in using the whip on the horse when he was riding in a cart when when having religious conversations. So um, yeah. so there's a fantastic story of him going with a follower who was even more slavish than him who was actually eating grass at this point because they decided that vegetarianism wasn't simply enough. He got very okay. ill. Uh, and they, didn't, they neither agreed with using the whip nor with steering in this conversation, <laughs> and so the horse and cart leave the road uh, with Tolstoy mid dispute about the the higher points of life uh, about privilege and things like that and the horse is, and, you know it's, it's, it's the horse is requiring the whip uh, <laughs> and he, and he, he won 't give it the whip uh, and anyway that 's a kind of model for me of of how to tread carefully with these things um, I also very briefly i 'll be quick there 's a, ch- a chapter in this book which is about um, my wife, as a, who works as a, as a very hardcore scientist, uh, ornithologist in Zambia. Uh, but she works there with a group of people who are field workers who work who find her nests for her. She's a, she works on birds that behave like cuckoos, but she's not very good at finding nests. No one—I mean, none of us—are very good at finding nests. John Clare was probably the greatest nest finder in, the in, in, in England, and he's long gone. Um, my wife might find one nest a week in her field site. These guys who are illiterate, one of whom is in prison now for murder, uh, uh, can find 20 a day. I want to think about ways of writing, uh, about other ways of people being able to enter a landscape, to read a landscape, to live in a landscape. And um, So privilege, yes, I did fly there, uh, and I'm conscious that, um, that we spend you know too much time, too much money living our lives to, to write our books as we do, but um,
0: I hope it's not just a a one-sided thing. Thank you. I think we'll have to stop the Apologies. Um, I, that's been uh, wonderful for me and I believe for the audience, so thank you both very thank much.
2: much. Thank thank you. So much. Thanks,